Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to our new PR Week podcast episode with John Harrington. Welcome to a special edition of the PR show from PR Week, which is all about the UK Top 150 Consultancies Report. As you may know, PR Week recently published our annual agency rankings alongside a series of features looking at major themes and developments in the sector. I'm John Harrington, Deputy Editor of PR Week UK, and I'm delighted to be joined by three top agency bosses to discuss the findings. We have Joanne Robertson, CEO and partner at Ketchum London, Bibi Hilton, MD of Golin London and also President of Women in PR, and Warren Johnson, founder of W Communications. Welcome to you all. Um, I'm going to give a brief overview of our findings under different headings, then we'll crack on with the discussions. Firstly, I wanted to look at the overall trading picture in 2018 and 2019. What we found from our table was that um, growth in the top 150 accelerated slightly to 9.1% versus 8.1% in 2017. This is for the calendar year. Um, We noticed that there were several financial PR powerhouses that benefited from a stronger um, M&A and IPO market, which probably impacted on the overall figures considerably. Um, elsewhere, some of the bigger players experienced slower growth, and there were general signs that um, there was some client um, uh, reluctance in some in some uh, some ways of uh, uh, committing committing to uh, to accounts and some sluggish consumer spending and so on, meaning there were some relatively difficult headwinds. Then again, um, quite a lot of agencies were saying that. Actions that they've done themselves, such as you know diversifying their offer, um, has helped. Um, and there were also several areas where um, trading generally was was reasonably strong, such as agencies that combined corporate and public affairs and some of the um, various sort of specialists that were still um, doing pretty well. And uh, areas such as pharma too. Um, so, who would like to kick us off on a discussion about this? I guess first question might be. Uh, how would you describe 2018 in a word, uh, trading-wise, and 2019 in perhaps another word? Who would like to uh, to start? 
Can I use more than one word? Uh, you can <laughs> use up to three words. <laughs> uh, 2018 was another strong year. Uh, 2019 is uh, good but challenging. Uh, I think we were discussing earlier that it's um, there's obviously fun and games and things like Brexit, but I, th- I think that the, the whole global economy is is looking uh, certainly in in increasingly uncharted waters, and and I think that where client you know I think client outlook is is certainly less confident than it was 12 months ago, and I think that's going to affect us all in some way, shape, or form. Yep. Um, either of you like to uh, come in on a... Yeah, I don't know. Trying to get a PR person to sum that up in one word, John, I think that's, <laughs> that's quite difficult. Um, I think from our perspective, last year, IPG, we did kind of mid-single-digit, which is pretty much in line with, with our competitive group. I think that definitely recognise some of the headwinds that you talked about. Where we're seeing the, the kind of real strong areas of growth is in healthcare and technology. Mm. I think our kind of combined healthcare teams are just doing phenomenally well at the moment. Um, and also we're seeing a real growth in kind of integrated work. So working hand in hand either with our other sisters across um, the IPG group. So um, as some of our big consumer clients are looking to consolidate, that's actually really good for us because um, as part of a kind of holding company integrated team, we're, we're doing well off the back of that. Um, but also working with our sister Brooklyn Brothers, we've had some some good wins like water wipes in the last year. So Cheers. Good stuff. I can do it in one word. I think, um, and I think 2018 and 2019 are the same, which is roller coaster. So I think there are moments of extreme highs, which um, is really great for the agency and for the network. And then there are moments that are really difficult. But I think in terms of it's great to see the industry as an over, overall in the UK in growth um, because I think it's never been harder for everybody, no matter what their size or scale, to really drive that growth. So people are having to really prove themselves to every client that they have and also in every opportunity that comes in. So, you know, great to see growth, but definitely a roller coaster. Mm. This point about a lot of agencies saying that they've benefited from diversifying what they do and sort of really focusing on, on different areas. Obviously, Bibi, you sort of you highlighted a couple of examples there. I mean, are there any other ways in which you've seen this trend play out in 2018, 2019? Are there other kind of areas in which, you know, maybe PR can eat more of Adland's lunch or... Well, I think clients have never been more open-minded in the sense that the PR partner, as it's it's been seen, there's now a real recognition that we can do more than we've ever done before. And I think there's also a recognition that our talent base thinks more broadly and more laterally than maybe some of our um, creative industries, brothers and sisters. And so... As long as we are focused, keeping earned at the core, because that's who we are and what we've where we've come from, it's our true kind of expertise. Surrounding that with new skills, different talent is definitely, I think, a path to continued growth. Good. I think I think the meaning of diversification has changed in the last couple of years. I think that we went through a phase as an industry, and I've certainly seen that within our own agency, of right diversification diversification means we can we can sell advertising we can go out and sell you know everything that everyone else in marcoms can sell and sort of losing sight a bit of our, our pr roots and i think now we we've kind of moved for diversification to mean okay it's about 
other disciplines and skills, but that are much more intrinsically linked to what we do as a PR business, but making that better. So, for example, yes, we've built and invested in data analytics, but rather than selling that as a completely separate piece of consultancy, it's about, okay, so how do we use that then to do better creative work or better media relations or better measure the impact of the work that we're doing rather than trying to diversify into lots and lots of different disciplines? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think the the kind of build on it is that we, we have made ads this year yeah. for Unilever, but we've done it with the PR lens on mm. and we've not got thought, let's go into advertising, but we've when there's been a kind of winner-takes-all brief on the table with multiple um, agencies, um, when there's come a case where actually the, the, the PR view on it is more interesting than the ad agency's view, and actually we can produce content, as I'm sure you guys can as well, for a tenth of the cost that some of the ad agencies can, to be able to be agile and creative for big uh, multinational brand is, is is really effective for them and I think our job you know all, all of us that are doing well at the moment are doing well because we're able to help um, sort of charter the sort of quite challenging waters with our clients and if we can help them do better um, in terms of cost savings not reducing output then I think we're all going to be in it um, and do well. Good. Um, it'd be good to sort of um, go through perhaps how 2018 panned out in terms of, you know, quarter by quarter and how that's kind of um, developed as 2019 has, has gone on. Was there a sense that there was one time that was distinctly more difficult than another time? or um, And how do you think the sort of toing and froing of Brexit um, and other macro issues like, you know, the sort of um, uh, kind of possibilities of the trade war with China and the US and all, all of that sort of thing has kind of played out here, really? I think for us, last year was, was pretty solid growth and followed the, the relatively standard patterns um, that it normally does. Th- th- this year follows a pattern that you could have probably predicted, which is we had a stellar January, February. March was terrible. The minute that we knew what... Um, or, or we, we we knew what the uncertainty of Brexit looked like, then this month has been phenomenal. It's been our best month ever. And it's exactly what happened um, around the referendum vote, where the month running up to the vote was really, really poor. The month afterwards was our best on record. And it's really a case, seemingly, of people holding things back, trying to sort of hedge whether there might be an advantageous outcome for them, realising that there probably isn't, and then it, it's kind of business as usual. So I've seen that repeat itself twice now. Interesting. Have um, either of you sort of seen a similar view or is it just... Uh, no, I don't think so. I'd say our 2018 followed the pattern it always does. You know, yeah, Q2 and 3 are always our busiest quarters. You know, Q4 is traditionally, you know, a lot of pitching, etc. So I wouldn't say it's... I don't think that we can draw lines of any real material impact from Brexit. I think that a lot of the big blue chips we work on, I think, have been planning in inverted commas as much as you can uh, for a long time and I, I don't see a particular correlation between that and the uncertainty and necessarily what we're seeing in our business Yeah I'd say exactly the same now, 2018 was the same as most years and I think anecdotally we hear a lot of the big global clients talk about what they might do given potent- the outcome of Brexit but in terms of the toing and throwing we're not really seeing them react to that which is good Good, good. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm doubtfully we'll come back to a lot of these themes as, as we go through, but I'm going to um, look at our next sort of subject area, which is looking at priority areas of investment. Um, we asked uh, the uh, top 150 um, entrants 
where they're sort of putting most of their uh, focus when it comes to, to investments at the moment. And what we found is really a kind of an interesting mix of traditional and non-traditional services as the biggest priority areas. Um, the area that was top uh, was digital content, which was followed closely by media relations. Um, and then we had things like general marketing services sandwiched between traditional areas, I suppose, like B2B and crisis risk management. Um, I mean, our assessment here is that while PR firms want to obviously adapt and modernise, they also can't keep their eyes off the fundamental PR services. And as earned media comes to the fore, um, linked to kind of quite a lot of turmoil and ad land, um, who can blame them? Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on on this topic, you know, the sort of most important areas to, to focus attention at the moment? Well, I think it's, I don't think we're any different from any other industry that has to modernise while keeping their eye on the fundamentals. That sh- any good business should be doing that no matter where they are in the world or what sector they're in. But I think um, it's it, the fundamental thing for every agency should be it's not or, it's and. Because at the end of the day, as Bibi just said, you know, our heartland is always going to be earned. And we have to be clear what that is. It's not necessarily media relations per se, but it's earning the right to be in a conversation and have a conversation. So it doesn't surprise me that um, digital content and media relations are up there because they're two really critical ways in which you earn you know, trust, respect, engagement, conversation, mm-hmm. all the things that are really po- important to to our clients. So I think it's it's smart that we're doing that and clearly that's part of the reason why it's driving growth in the industry. Yeah, I don't disagree. I'm I'm surprised that data analytics didn't come up as one of the top areas. And maybe it maybe it did. Yeah, it was I mean these it, these but... are the only the, the sort of the, the real top ones. I mean, we we did ask that was that was yeah. among those that was chosen. I mean there was also another area of um we asked about sort of brand uh, sort of purpose marketing, cause marketing, that sort of thing, which had, you know, a reasonable number of people sort of ticks that box. Um, I get the impression if we'd have done this two years ago, no one would have ticked that box or yeah. very few. So I think these are sort of interesting sort of sub subsects. Yeah. But I agree. I mean, you know, data is one where perhaps I thought maybe more would. Yeah, particularly because from an investment perspective, because I guess we were talking about this a bit before this conversation started about, I think there's a difference between priority areas for us as a business. And I agree with Joanne that some of those have been as long as this industry has been going on and then areas for investment. And, and that's the reason I think it's interesting to talk about data analytics, because that is well, certainly for our business, it's a priority area, but it's also an area that requires significant investment because you can't pivot classic PR talent into doing that. You need people who are specialists. You need to be investing in new platforms and, and, and tools and training people to be able to use and to sell those and to integrate it into your business. I think that is quite a significant investment. Talking about cause-related mar- cause marketing, some of those other areas, I think that that is, yes, priority areas, but in terms of from an investment perspective, that's often about pivoting people who maybe have working in adjacent areas or had kind of been working that before but maybe it hadn't actually been developed as a full specialism for that for that agency so I think the one other area that's perhaps not been covered is is um sector expertise um I think that there's we talk a lot about services but we actually don't talk enough about learning our clients business uh, and certainly what what we tend to get best responses from clients is when we make significant sector hires that that Im- improve their own outputs. I, I think that um, a, j- a journalist once described uh, 
uh, PRs to me is undertrained and over familiar, which always sort of filled me with horror. Um, and so we've always, it's always been really important to us to, to really understand our clients' business as much as understand the business of the media, which is why we represent so many media companies. Also, we, we make client side investments, we hire ex clients. And so I think that that's an area that for us is really important to continue to hire people from our clients' industries or people, journalists from their clients, or people that are adjacent to it. So actually, they can bring as much expertise to really support the client as possible. Interesting. Uh, what would you say is kind of your your sort of biggest priority in terms of um, uh, the services or the sectors that that you're looking to um, uh, invest in over the next year or two? I think well, two areas for us: making more acquisitions. Um, our, our recent acquisition of Lotus has been really successful, and that follows up with my sort of desire to drive um, sector expertise. We've uh, we're on course to have tripled our EBITDA since we acquired them. The other area is, is pure play creativity. Um, we always won lots of awards for our creativity. Um, I don't know whether you guys are seeing this or not, but there's there's a lot more desire from clients to buy almost sort of pure creative rather than the 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 levels of thinking that I think a lot of us traditionally do in in pitches and with clients. There's just a lot of desire for really really big ideas. Quite often, I think seen by a lot more sort of CMOs being involved in pitch process as well who who actually just want to understand how earned media can really supercharge their um, their own um, marketing programs above and beyond any media spend they've got so I think you know having hired the first um, sort of ECD in our in our category we're looking to kind of bulk up our creative team as well because I think there's a there's an insatiable appetite for really really strong creative ideas across the board mm-hmm. interesting yeah, I would I would agree with that in terms of creative. Um, that's something that we've we've been doing as well, investing in our building out our creative team. Um, healthcare, I think that that's. Um, I know we're going to come on to talk about talent, but I think that that's an area we've seen growth, but mm. also an area that is very much a priority. And mm. it's about getting the right talent into the business and continuing to be able to kind of grow that and and kind of meet the the opportunities and demand that we've got coming into the business. So I'd say those two areas. I'm not going to talk about data anymore, but that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And pretty much a combination of those. So um, data and analytics, really important. Um, creative, really important. Healthcare, really important. <laughs> but I think the other area where we're investing heavily is in strategy, because I think it's where we can really differentiate in the kind of broader marketing mix is when you come with a stronger point of view that's built from culture. Um, which I think some of the the ad agencies are still really struggling with. Mm-hmm. Interesting, good stuff. Um, next topic I want to talk about is margins. Um, what we you noticed. Know, Bibi and I can't talk about that. Ah, uh, well, right, it's my favourite subject. So it'll be fun. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> you may just go and make a cup of tea. And <laughs> Maybe you could talk in general terms rather than your own businesses. Okay, great. Yeah. What I can talk to you about is the stats we found, I and mean, we asked people to give their margin figures in 2017, 2018 anonymously. We noticed there was a slight decline in average margin from very slight, from 20.2 to 19.7 percent. Um, although a majority, 58 percent, saw margins improve. Um, which suggests the overall figure is distorted by a small number of very big changes. Um, I mean, one of the things that's come out from our our analysis is we've seen agencies develop more specialisms that have higher margins, you know, from some of the things we're talking about, video uh, technology, sort of general general content creation, uh, data offer, um, in some cases financial PR services, things like that, and uh, and pharma too. Um, And obviously... You know, uh, things like uh, office costs and staff costs play a huge part here too. So margins, 
What are your thoughts? Um, is it is it is it noticeably tougher? Has it been noticeably tougher in the last few years to sort of maintain margins? I know, obviously, not being able to discuss yours yours in particular. I mean, what what are your sort of thoughts on this? Topic? Uh, I mean, ours ours is ours has always been very very high twenties. I think we're twenty seven or twenty eight percent, which is pretty strong. Um, we've we've done that through. Um, I think kind of hustle and and agility um, and being able to you know grow quickly, win lots of pitches, but also um, retain clients. Um, I think, and we were talking about this earlier. I think the margin has been relatively well protected within the industry, despite the sort of procurement headwinds and the almost crippling cost of pitching now, um, by the fact that PR people are pretty bloody resourceful. And they're actually all of these diversified services, things that are often sold to existing clients, meaning you have a very limited, if not zero, cost of sale, which is going to be significantly improving your margin. I mean, I think the the, the amount of pitching going on where they take three, four, five months to go through. Um, and that's, that's expensive if you have a 100% win record. If, if, Never, let's, yeah. if let's say you're doing one in three, which would be, you know, fairly good. Um, you know, it, it means you have to go through three of those just to win one. And the duration of client relationships, I think, is probably lower than it has, has ever been either. So you've got less amount of time to have to earn more money back just to make the same amount of money. And at some point, that that kind of... But this is a real bugbear for yeah. me as an industry in that we have no basic standards for pitch process. It is literally the Wild West. So there's no basic rules of engagement things that are expected from the client and or mm-hmm. the agency. And I think yeah, recently there was a, a whole thread on Twitter around um, pitch kind of horror stories. And they're so frequent now where you can go through... I mean, we've had some pitches that have lasted nine, ten months, <laughs> and at the end of it you get nothing in response. And then you kind of like talk to your pals and they're like, no, we didn't either, no, we didn't either. And that the amount of money, hard money it costs, but yeah. time resource, emotion that we as agencies put into trying to win a piece of business is, I think, a huge problem for our industry, particularly in terms of of margin. And I'd much rather be spending 80% of that money I'm spending on that on talent because there's a war for talent. So I'd rather be paying people better. I'd rather be bonusing people better. But we're in this constant conundrum. And we were talking earlier, there's always someone who's willing to go with the flow on the yeah. process and so we're as an industry we're our own worst nightmare and I think it's it should be top of our priority in terms of fixing that mm. Interesting, what are your thoughts Bibi? Yeah I mean I, I, I agree with Warren and Joanne I think uh, the cost of pitching for new business is definitely a challenge I think that's definitely changed in the last few years, I mean I think I think Margins are under pressure for for big agencies, you know, office costs, talent costs, cost of growing your business. Um, I think it is is more challenging. But, I mean, it's good to see the numbers overall that the industry is managing to protect the margin. It doesn't seem like it's shifted much more, the average, over the past few years. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And as I say, I think... You know this this kind of move to the new services. I think has been has been a big part of that. I mean, I think one of the general trends I've seen from a number of different parts of the top one hundred and fifty coverage is that you know the industry is working really really hard to sort of um, kind of maintain its its position, and nothing is coming automatically. Yeah. You know, obviously, earn media has become um, you know the um, an increasingly important thing for for lots of clients, but there's no sense that we ne- that the PR industry is going to necessarily get the advantage of that. It's all about working hard, adding new services where necessary, sh- moving structures, just kind of optimizing what um uh what what can be optimized and um 
uh, yeah, to sort of um, uh, tread water and then move ahead and sort of keep keep things going. So that definitely seems to be. Yeah. No, be I case. think I think we need to be really careful uh, as an industry, though, because I mean we've seen, you know, the ad creative agencies have their business models really heavily disrupted. We've seen over the last few years that almost kind of collapse in media buying agencies, you know, firepower. At, at some point, you've got to think that we'll, we'll get disrupted in some way, shape or form mm. too. I think the the thing about PR people is I, I think we're, we're always quite hard on ourselves, probably more than, you know, one of the things I bang on about is we need to have the swagger that the ad, ad land has. But I actually think that probably puts us in quite good stead because we're always second guessing ourselves and trying to improve. But I think at some point there will be a sort of great disruption. I mean, just looking at your list, there's a hell of a lot of agencies billing quite a lot of money out there. At some point, you know, you, you question, is that too many? Is it the amount of agencies out there that are driving, you know, a- allowing this pitch madness to happen? Or actually, it'd be, it'd be interesting next year to look at average fees mm. um, because I certainly our we just win more business the fees aren't going up the percentage of fees to um hard costs is increasing so hard costs are you know when i started it was 50 50 it's now probably 80 20 um and 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 at some point pr budgets have to go up rather than just you doing more for less they'll they'll come a point where that becomes untenable i mean is that is that a real problem do you think that the the this industry that just feels too bashful too sort of timid to ask for more fees or is there too much competition is, is it what's, what's well, the, the problem is it's, we're, we're really good we're really good as an industry <laughs> and when clients say no i'm not going to pay for that you need to find a way to do it the, the problem the problem is is that we do and it's great in the short term but bad in the long term and so i, th- I think we need to slightly push some of those problems back into into being costly and actually bizarrely our, our own resourcefulness is our you know is, is, is a problem for us mm, interesting um Okay, going to move on to um, going to put the the, the um, subjects of talent and diversity together because it's hard to shift them. And this was um, Warren's um, suggestion earlier on, actually, to combine these two because I think it's a very sound point. Um, I mean, on the on the sort of specifically the talent um, front, what we saw um, we were asking people what the biggest challenges for the year ahead, and um, talent was perhaps unsurprisingly chosen as, as the top one, uh, and the staff churn figures um, increased slightly. Um, again, not by much, but um, 2017, 17.2%, 2018, 18.6%. Um, this is across the, the top 150 um, as an average. So, you know, you might expect it's, it will be much higher at certain agencies and certain sectors. Um, but what's clear is that the battle to attract and retain top talent is as fierce as ever. Um, and in terms of diversity, I mean, there was the recent um, CIPR survey that put the industry as 92% white. Um, I mean, we found that 72% of people um, uh, on boards were uh, were white, I believe. I might have to double-check that. Um, but certainly uh, in terms of gender as well, and I know it's a bit crude to sort of lump all of these things together, but nevertheless, um, just to give a kind of, a, a kind of an overview, 65% of um, staff um, across the top 150 agencies uh, were female um, and 50% of the people on boards were female. So there's clearly an um, underrepresentation there. Um, there's a lot to get through. A lot, it's a big, very big question. But what, what do you think the sort of um, uh, the key problems are here when it comes to uh, attracting and retaining talent and having a diverse workforce? That's a huge Whoa. question. There it is. <laughs> Can I start on the gender one? Yeah. Okay. Just, I just, gonna, yeah, just, just put my women in PR hat on. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I think 
I think we're right to discuss this um, as a combined topic because I think that the key, and Warren and we were all talking about this earlier, I think the key to unlocking this challenge we all have around talent and retaining talent and kind of all fighting after the best people is to look in different places and that means being open to more diverse talent and that also means looking for talent in different places and then building a more inclusive culture but just on the gender point I think that um, being brutally honest I just think it's really disappointing that number about 50% leadership teams being female in an industry that's two-thirds female I think that it just shows that we are not changing quickly enough because there really is no reason on earth that the leadership teams of the top 150 agencies shouldn't reflect the gender dynamics of our industry. And I think what that says to me is that we're not doing enough as a collective to make changes to to address that because I think we can be sure the reasons behind that are that curve where you're seeing, you know, it is a kind of, very old kind of classic example but you're just seeing women falling out of our industry or not reaching their potential not reaching leadership because of working in agencies that aren't able to support them having through a family and I'm pretty sure you're going to see that curve and I think as you're now seeing more and more men wanting to take time out to be fathers that you're going to have the same challenges and I think we need to be doing more to champion flexible working to be able to support women when they're going on maternity leave and returning to um, creating workplaces that are you know that you're able to manage the demands of family life and I think that goes for men and women and I think that is the key to addressing that and I'd really like to see that balance shifting yeah absolutely any other thoughts on um uh well I guess gender first of all and the sort of diversity point gender and ethnicity that particular particular problems this industry has as opposed to other yeah industries? I think so I mean for me we've looked at it and our numbers are in line with with the industry and you know which is obviously not 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 strong um I think that we need a really different way of looking at it and I think it's rather than attracting talent hey Dave yeah Randy since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks underwear and t-shirts are super soft any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I think it's about creating talent. I think our, our problem is, is we keep looking at the same pool of university educated people mm. doing degrees in PR in Bournemouth and they're, they're like us they're all you know so it, it's we're, we're hiring like for like and I think that our job as an industry is to go and talk to people at school that are 14, 16 that perhaps won't go to university certainly don't even know what PR is it's our job to inspire them 
in, into thinking that PR could be an option for them and stop demanding university degrees, stop demanding... I, I think you guys did something yeah. about... So that, I, th- I thought, was was fantastic. And I think they're the types of things... Rather than kind of, you know, going around, you know, doing kind of um, ethnicity quotas, I think it's it's less about skin colour or ethnicity. It's, it's more about social mobility. And, and, and actually, I, th- I think you can, you can attract much more diverse talent by concentrating on younger people and inspiring them as part of this a really bloody exciting industry that we've all had a great time in and I think that that for me is the biggest thing that as industry we need to tackle but for me it's you know I remember this being talked about when I first came into PR 17 years ago and we've made very little progress across the diversity spectrum which is huge and so there's an element of we have to be much more intentional rather than just saying we need to be more diverse we actually have to do kind of concrete things about it and so at Ketchum like on the female stuff at Ketchum 75% of my exec team's female 68% of my board is female um, I've got up to 65% of my creative team is female so you know we're, but we're being very intentional about reflecting 75% of my agency is female right so I'm trying to reflect <laughs> what my agency what my agency is and now I'm kind of moving on to social I'm moving on to ethnicity and it's really, really hard. And I yeah. think we think it's easy. It's kind of, well, we just need to change you know, our recruitment process or we just need to change um, our job descriptions. And uh, it's not a silver bullet. There are like a million arrows that you need to fire in order to start to change that dynamic. And I yeah. think as an industry as a whole, we talk about it every year, but we make no progress. And it's kind mm. of like, when are we going to say enough is enough and demand certain things from our agencies? And I think clients are starting to demand it. Now, more and more often we're being asked, in the last three pitches we've done in the first quarter, we've been asked for our diversity statistics. Really? And yeah. I love that. I mean, I love it in part because we're very strong in this area. But at the same time, I'm like, good. It's going to force some agencies to actually walk the talk rather than just say it. Yeah. and I mean, I, I agree, I think. Um, I'm pleased to say our leadership team also reflects uh, the industry, 60% female as well. But it's, um, I think we're all really good at talking about these issues, but I think that we have to take some real action. And I I agree with Warren that it is about looking at that um, kind of junior entry level and where we're all looking for talent. Um, that I think the programme you're referring to is that we we pay for living costs for our um, our interns. We've always paid our interns, but um, the last couple of years we now pay for accommodation because we worked out that if you I don't know say live in the north of England, you want to move to London to start your career, you and you don't have financial family support, you need something like five grand in your back pocket to move to London to pay a month's rent up front, mm. etc. And so that that was a real barrier for us being able to unlock talent. But I think that with all of these different types of diversity, I think that as well as looking at junior level, we've also got to make the change at mid and senior levels. And to your point, Joanne, that's what makes it really difficult, I think, as agency leaders, is that we've got to affect all of this change at the same time. Because the risk is otherwise you, you recruit brilliant, diverse candidates at a junior level. They come in, they settle, and then they look up and go, nobody OK, there's there. nobody at the top yeah. that looks like me, is from the same background as me. And then but if those people aren't in industry, them. how do you... But they are. They, they are, are in the industry. And I think that... But they might be in not necessarily in a, a classic agency where you always fish, or they might um, be people who are on a family career break that we could get back, or they might be have set up their own 
one person agency and would like to actually return to big agency and so I think that it's about and that's actually really good for us when we're all fighting in battles using recruiters over the same talent and paying you know 20% for the privilege I think that finding talent from maybe more unusual sources being more creative about it is good for diversity and it's also really good for us as a business and I think that if we don't start addressing some of these none of us will have a business in five to ten years because we won't be being to your point be invited to pitch it is interesting, isn't it, about the increasing number of clients asking for these things. Mm. I mean, do you think that re- relates directly? I mean, um, to some, you know, some campaigns that I've I sort of think of off the top of my head that I won't mention here. That the last couple of years that have really been kind of clangers, and part yeah. of the reason is a complete lack of sensitivity and understanding about people who don't come from the same background. Yeah. Um, so it's not just a case of clients are doing this because it looks like a nice thing to do they're doing it because they've had enough of people who can't think outside the bubble they live in definitely i definitely think that um i think i probably know one of the campaigns that you're thinking about no i I definitely hear that from clients um i think it's probably also one of the positive things that procurement is doing for the whole marcoms industry because they are also um sort of tasked with that's another element of what they're being they're being tasked with because at the you know the top level of all these big blue chip companies they're also having to change they've got activist investors they have to now provide this data to their own shareholders so therefore they're telling procurement well any supplier and partner we work with has got to adhere to the same changes because if you know on their own boards they're having to affect that kind of diversity there's no point going to work with a partner who's going to field you know a team of five white men to work on their business so i think that i think that that pressure is just going to continue i've never heard um anyone in PR, say a positive thing about procurement. I don't think so. <laughs> this is probably a first. You heard it here first. But um, interesting. A sort the of one more, positive thing about procurement. One positive thing about procurement. Um, maybe a sort of you know broadening this this issue out a bit more. We talk about kind of um, retaining talent, and a lot of this comes down into the sort of workplace practices. And we mentioned someone mentioned brief uh, earlier on a little bit about flexible working. I mean, mm-hmm. where do you think this sort of industry can can do better when it comes to a kind of more general being a, a positive workplace? Um, environment and uh, having positive practices? Well, I think what's interesting that I've seen over the last couple of years is when we are losing people, it's very rarely now to another agency. So it's very rarely like for like, or even to in-house, it's often because they're choosing to do something completely different. Like one person went and set up a yoga retreat in the south of France. It's amazing, right? Um, One person decided to go travel the world and then um, trained as a teacher. So like real fundamental Mm. changes. And I think... um, because we'd started to see that, that's why we've worked really hard at changing some of the ways in which we work. So we no longer have core hours as an agency. We have what we call smart working, which is just 100% flexibility. So you can choose where and when you work, week in, week out, as long as you're putting your client and your team at the heart of that and you're all communicating and coordinating and making sure that's right. But there are some unintended consequences of that because then there are no hard boundaries, right? So if you work in a job that is very much, you know, 9 to 5.30 and you come in at 9, you leave at 5.30 and you kind of, you've got your life either side of it. If you're given permission to work 100% flexibly, some people find that really hard to then draw the boundaries. So then you get into long hours. So you're constantly having to help and support people make the choices that are right for them. And so I always say flexibility isn't right for some people. Some people like a very structured kind of, I come in at this time, I leave at this time, that's how I manage my life. 
other people like me I mean I kind of sometimes people say to me you work 24-7 and I'm like I don't I just work very flexibly and so I'll work at odd times sometimes because it fits around my family life and my interests and whatever it might be so it, I don't think it's as simple as just saying you can work flexibly. You have to help individuals make the right choices for them that allows them to balance you know, their life in its entirety. I also think there's there's we get a lot of this from much younger people entering the industry. And it's, you know, I, I, I'm slightly sceptical. I, I think you've, you've got to learn the craft and the trade first before you can start working off site. You know, you can only, as a junior entering the industry, you have to learn from senior people around you. There's, there's no one that's so brilliant that they can go and work, you know, for three hours at home every day and, and develop their skills as much as they need to. So I completely agree at a certain level, it works perfectly. And I, I, I run a similar day to what you've done. But I think if you're trying to create a culture of of best in class work and camaraderie and all of those types of things that a lot of that, that you need to create in an office environment i think too much flexibility certainly amongst juniors can be really counterproductive i don't know that i agree with that because i think well certainly in our business so many of our teams are global we're a globally driven business so a lot of teams are virtual anyway so people are using technology and different ways in which to be in their team without kind of sitting in the same physical location so I think you can still learn and develop I mean I encourage as part of smart working it's not just about working from home I mean it's work from anywhere that makes you more productive more creative whatever it might be so I encourage loads of our people go and work in the clients offices spend a day two days a week and integrated with them hearing and listening to them so it's kind of about work where it makes most sense at the time that it makes most sense to get the best possible work. And I, I think that relates whether you're an intern or whether you're the CEO. Maybe, maybe at a global level, not certainly not from a, from a UK perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that I do agree with you, Warren, that I think that in our business, a creative business, and people need to come together in some kind of space at some point. It's, and that's where the creativity... Human, it's a human industry. Yeah, it is. So, to, so I, I do agree with that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of chat about virtual agencies etc and I, I certainly don't think that's the way our business is going to go personally um, however saying that I'm a huge champion for flexible working and I think in our business we have a difference between people who have what I would call formal flexible terms so they do all different things they might do a three-day week or a four-day week or compressed hours so they can do pick up or because there are other things that they do outside of of work and then just general flexibility so you know we have unlimited holiday and people can work from home and that's kind of goes for, for all of our team I think that the the flexible working point is really important linking back to particularly what we're saying about retaining parents and particularly retaining women to leadership because I think that there is absolutely no reason why you could not work a four day week so it means you have one day that you either spend with your family or means you can do school drop off and pick up and still have a very senior leadership role um, maybe I'm biased because that's what I do but I think that 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 is really important and you know particularly now uh, the role that I'm I'm doing women in PR and we talk about this a lot Joanne and I on, on the committee there are a lot of senior women in our industry who come to us and tell their stories and talk about you know I've been with Blar agency for decades and um, you know I just want to work a four-day week so I can do pick up at least one day a week and they won't let me and that to me just seems really short-sighted it's a small change and that person is probably delivering a huge amount for the business and I think that you're then at risk of losing some of that talent I think that's probably why we aren't seeing those numbers um the why the leadership women on the leadership team is not reflecting the overall demographic yeah, I'm of the surprised industry. you're saying people aren't allowed to work four day a week yeah. I've never heard that before yeah we get yeah, quite quite a lot really had one today 
Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's a small change, but I, th- I think there's a that I think it's it's hard for women though. My wife's done it. Sophie Rain, my deputy MD, does it now. It's really hard to work because it's a full time job, and it's really and I've I've seen Sophie and Clem r- wrestle with with how you sort of switch off for that final day. It's it's really tough. Yeah, I think it. I think it is. I mean, I think I think you. As a senior leader, if you're going to work flexibly, I think then you have a responsibility to be a good role model to more junior people in the in the agency in terms of saying, okay, you know, on a Friday I'm with my kids and I'm not going to exactly. answer emails. Yeah. I mean, there's always exceptions. In the same way, I think in our business, you know, you get the call at 2 a.m. because a client's having a crisis. I mean, we all know that our business really is seven day a week responsibility. So I don't think that's that's any any different um, but I think the benefit that you can have as a business by enabling people to work a bit more flexibly and spend time with their families or do other things I think I would like to stress that it's not just about mums or parents I think that we're definitely seeing people wanting to work more flexibly because you know they might do yoga or... yeah, exactly. we've got some people who work um, yeah. contractual like four days a week because they spend one day doing an Something outside interest. Yeah. I think that can actually be good be. for your business totally. that they're getting um, inspiration from elsewhere. So, yeah. But I think we're really fortunate as a, because we're an industry that is essentially 24-7, being able to offer people, you know, empower people and trust people to manage their time in the most effective way. And I think what's interesting is we've moved to smart working, which is 100% flexibility. Our office is full almost every day because mm. we've got a great culture. So people want to come and spend time together. But when they want to use flexibility for whatever reason, they don't have to go through a process to ask. And we get very few now um, contractual requests to work a four-day week or whatever it might yeah. be because people can just build that into that point about knowing I'm not here every Monday is very stressful, whereas knowing that I can kind of leave at four, three days a week yeah. to do pick-up and then work later that night to make sure I'm delivering what needs to be delivered is actually quite empowering. So people can make the right choice for whatever their lifestyle is. Interesting. Well, fascinating stuff there. Um, I want to move on to a completely different... Well, not completely, because everything's linked, isn't it? But um, um, it does seem like a bit of a switch, but uh, mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Well, uh, yeah. Nice segue there, John. There it is. Thanks. Yeah. We're going to stop talking about that, and now we're going to talk about this. Yeah. Um, but I would argue that there is a link, because in a sense, when you're... Go it's on all then. about buying people, isn't then. it? I mean, you know, you can either... If you want to employ loads of... Um, you know, you want to add a tech team, say, it's probably easier to buy a small tech agency than to hire 15 people in one go who are tech experts. So there you go. There's my link. There you go. Well done. <laughs> Seamless. There's definitely there's no way this is going to be cut out. This is this, is, this bit's gold dust. Um, yeah. So um, M&A, uh, we looked at data for the top 150 on, from Results International that shows M&A uh, in UK PR, I, number of PR agencies bought, sold, accelerated a bit in 2018, despite... Uh, Brexit and other challenges. Consensus seems to be that UK remains a preeminent PR market with skills and ex- uh, experience that won't simply disappear when we leave the EU, making it attractive to buyers, plus the relative weakness of the pound has helped. Not that there aren't plenty of challenges, um, while global listed Marcoms groups have generally steered clear of acquisitions of traditional PR at least recently. Um, private equity and non-listed trade buyers have stepped in, particularly US firms uh, or North American firms, I should probably say, um, that want a presence over here. Um, Warren, you've obviously been um, involved in M&A recently. What, what are your thoughts on um, the uh, uh, the opportunities for buying 
well, you've identified the main one, which is obviously the pound is super weak. So certainly if you're coming in from, from Asia or North America, there's great buying opportunities. Um, what, we've, what I've observed, which is quite interesting, which I'd love to say I, was, I foresaw, um, but I just happened to be uh, as part of it. But there's going to be a huge amount of acquisitions for UK-based travel um, expert agencies. I think there were three, one of which was ours, three deals done in about three months. Um, so I think there, there's maybe pockets of particular expertise that's being that's being sort of gobbled up quite quickly. Um, but I think you're right. There seems to be lots of buyers coming from quite uh, bizarre areas as well. There's there's things like um, I don't know whether you guys saw the deal with the Troika that bought Mission, mm-hmm. which kind of collapsed in in. Quite quite aggressive lawsuits in either way, which doesn't seem like a natural. Uh, you know, no one had heard of them beforehand. So yes, the kind of classic, you know, IPG or w, like any of those types of deals don't don't seem to be going through, because I guess on certain aspects, when you're acquiring for uh, as PLC, the valuations probably don't stack up enough for um for the markets. So I, I think you are seeing a lot of other. But ha- having said that. PR agencies are very cash generative, so people in business like to buy them because they can usually pay for themselves relatively quickly. So I think there will be um, there's quite a lot of A's. There's not as many M's in the M and A place, and I mm. think that uh, obviously there's some internal group mergers. Um, but um, it'll be interesting to see whether there's over time there'll they'll start to be some other actual proper mergers. Um, I'd, I'd certainly predict anything, you know, something significant in the next year or so, because I think that as as costs look to increase, certain in terms of the cost of pitching, the cost of acquiring talent, at some point people are going to look to kind of move together to start to pull back off its costs and start to look to... Because I, I think we're close to breaking point of if, if people need to sustain margin any further, they're going to have to start finding other ways of cutting costs and headcount isn't one, but back office costs might be. So I think we might see some more some more M's mm. as part of M&A. Interesting. Yeah, well, there's certainly been um, been quite a few M's recently, and there's going to be some more coming up. You know, perhaps perhaps with um, SEC and Porter um, sort of um, recently talking about plans yep. to merge, um, and obviously we know the big ones, um, Burson Conan Wolf, and um, a few smaller ones as well, like uh, BECG, um, and a few others. Um, I know um, you two obviously in a slightly different position, since you can't. Yeah. Go out and just buy an agency yourself. Oh. Maybe you can. I yeah. don't know. Never say Maybe never. personally. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what do you what do you do? You got any sort of particular reflections yeah. on on M and A? Do you wish you had some a company done... just buy some agencies? And... <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I guess you, were, you, had, you had Brooklyn. Wasn't I too love long shopping. Ago. I'm yeah. not going to deny that. I know Joanne does as well. Um, I mean, I think over the last over the last few years, we've we've made quite a few acquisitions. So the last one being Brooklyn Brothers um, in 2016. Um, so we went through a phase of of making quite a few. I mean, I think that we're always, you know, open. Obviously, you know, you get opportunities all the time. Um, but I think that that period that we went through was very strategic in adding certain disciplines or areas of expertise to our portfolio. Um, and I think at the moment, you know, we, we launched a new positioning about six months or so ago, and it's about that very much is about bringing all of those together. And I think with things like data analytics, we've made the decision that we want to build that from the ground up because we want to put it at the heart of our existing business rather than buying, say, a bolt-on business. Um, so, so yeah, never say never. Interesting. <laughs> Joanne? Yeah, I thoughts? mean, the, the Omnicom standards for merger and acquisition are extremely high, so... Being able to find something that meets their thresholds is is difficult. Um, but like BB, we're constantly kind of we've got our eye on the market. We're looking for something that strategically would add to the agency, but it's not something that we. 
I mean, Omnicom doesn't uh, acquire frequently. And so if you do make a pitch for it, it has to be an absolutely solid case. And I think one of the interesting things, looking at the, the top 150, from a financial point of view, you just see massive leaps at different parts of the mm. the list and size of agencies. Um, and yeah, size of agency is very important to Omnicom. So uh, whilst we keep our eye on it, I think we do a lot of building from the inside in terms of our uh, strengths and where we need to develop. And actually, I think we've never been more integrated within Omnicom Public Relations Group. So we work way more frequently than when we ever have with Fleischman, with Porter, with Portland um, to maximise the strengths across those four agencies as well, which is helping us to win a lot more business. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and sort of going on to Warren's point about the um, the M rather than the A, I mean, do you sort of think generally there'll be we'll see more mergers of of sister agencies um, coming up, um, or indeed, it would you know, make it would it would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, the kind of sorrel strategy of making sure that you've got a separate brand on the entire pitch list, so at least one of them wins. I think is you know uh, a bit old hat now. So I would, if I was a betting man, I would certainly put some more money on some big mega mergers like that for sure. You two have been, been quite tight-lipped. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Lead into that. No plans to be made aware of. <laughs> Good. Um, okay, well, I'm going to move uh, along from M&A. I know you're all really excited to talk about retainer <laughs> oh, versus projects. This is this got, well, I mean, you, you've all, um, listeners, heard that reaction. So maybe we keep this really, really uh, brief. I'm going to tell you what we found. Um so while uh, many agency chiefs say the direction of traffic is moving away from retainers and towards project work as it has been for some time, our data suggests it's um, the data uh, that sorry the proportion of retained work remains broadly unchanged uh, from twenty eighteen from twenty seventeen to twenty eighteen. Um, I mean, some agencies say they're purposely avoiding project briefs where they can or diversifying their offer again to um, encourage a greater number of retained relationships. Would anyone like to say anything on? Project versus retainer, or do you rather not? I can. Um, the uh, I think we're seeing more of a kind of hybrid. I, I don't think it's as binary as project or retainer. I think I there's a protainer, which is we're seeing <laughs> oh, a lot, we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a lot of um, lower baseline the annual fees with almost sort of guaranteed top ups, which if I'm honest, is providing us a certain level of commitment there. It's a kind of a more acceptable version of zero budgeting. Um, and it means that, you know, increasingly, those, those big PR fees are, are relentlessly scrutinised. And actually, if, if you can attribute top-ups to smaller specific projects, we found that clients find that more, more sympathetic to their own internal budgeting. So net-net, you end up with the same amount of money, but there's not just that big, great big, you know, sort of huge fee on, on a monthly basis, which I think puts a lot of pressure on the agency to kind of, you know, Idea. demonstrate value. Mm. Whereas if each time there's a specific client originated, 
mini brief or mini project that comes up, they they've briefed that in. So I think it it works well for for both parties. What what we're beginning to see a bit more of is actually the that version, but with zero retainer, and that actually becomes really costly because you're actually then doing a mini pitch each time, and that's for us a kind of line that we can't. Um, go beyond because it is really unprofitable but I think the kind of the hybrid version I, I think given given the current new climates we're in I think works well for client and agency yes. yeah and I, I think the reason I slightly grown at this question is I guess it's been a debate that's been going on for a long time and I think that in in our business we work on a lot of uh, big blue chip clients and we sit on 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 big rosters and the work there has often historically been project-based work, but in many cases is annualised project work. Exactly. Um, which obviously has you know great value to us as, as as a business. And I think that there's always been this, this perception that somehow retained work is more valuable and more secure than necessarily um, project work. And project work is kind of seen as more fly-by-night and, 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 and unreliable. And I think that we see that differently because a lot of our project work is for some of our kind of large just you know the most famous brands that we work for um and you know in many cases they're projects that we've been doing every year for the past 10 years or more um so i i think it's that sort of definition between one of the retainer being more valuable than project which is where i kind of disagree um i think that as with everything is you need a balance between all of those different types of um ways of working with clients because it's the forecasting that's the real challenge Um, and whether it's a project or whether it's retained work what we're all striving for i think is more predictable revenue income because that's how we're able to map talent and that goes back to the big challenge around talent Um, so that's yeah how I would see it exactly the same as BB but I think the other thing I would say is I think there's more opportunity than ever for unsolicited um, ideation with clients because their businesses are changing as rapidly as we are and so they're looking for consultants who are thinking about that and are ahead of the curve and so you can go and pitch to them a big idea that becomes a project which yeah. is real work that matters and that makes an impact and that's award winning rather than the kind of the constraints of a retainer which is essentially this is what we need to deliver month in month out which is incredibly valuable and important work but often it's those projects that allow you to really make the leap so I totally agree with you the balance is what's important good stuff well I think we're almost um almost done um but I did want to end with just um asking a question if we were going to be sat here a year from now and looking back on how how the past year had been what what do you think will be the biggest changes from what we were discussing now what would have been the big the big differences personally or in, or in the industry in the industry I mean my dream is that we make a significant practical leap forward on diversity mm. that we actually see some fundamental positive changes in that area and that we're not just having the same conversation again yeah I would agree I mean, I think those those statistics, you're not going to make a significant impact on those in a year, but it would be good to see some new industry standards. Um, and I think we should say it's good that PR Week are asking for that day, data on diversity good. this year. Um, who knows? Will we no longer be European? don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we're not still having that debate in a year. Yeah, We probably will. Be. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there'll be a couple of big deals to go through. I think there'll be a couple of businesses that will, that will quietly go under. Um, so I think I think there'll be quite a lot of churn in the agency landscape over the next twelve months. 
Interesting. Good stuff. Well, um, I can't wait to see if that uh, if that all, that all comes to fruition. But uh, yeah, so that's that's it. Thank you um, all so much for for being involved, and thanks to Marketeers for hosting the podcast, and um, thanks to the listeners for listening. And have a good day. Thank you. Thanks. thanks for listening to the PR Show podcast with John Harrington. Brought to you by PR Week. If you've liked what you've heard, please leave us a nice review. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.